recording. So live stream this on my YouTube channel in a second. All right, let's go for it. One second, there's this thing in the middle of the screen. Okay, cool, I think it's out. All right, well, thank you everyone for attending. I'm getting this question a lot, and I also just wanna share my own personal knowledge as to all the different ways that you can actually invest in real estate. A lot of people know the common routes, right? Maybe buying a single family or buying an individual home or potentially buying a multifamily. And those are good options. And we're still going to go over those as options. However, there are also a lot of other ways for you to invest. And there's going to have their own pros and cons to it. So let's jump into it and share a little bit of my background. Also, my personal uh, exposure to these. And then we're going to go over all these different options that you have. And I'll also go over at the end, in the beginning and the end, what are the things to consider? You don't have to invest in all of them. But depending on some of these, they may make sense for you. Now, I'm not a financial advisor. I'm a realtor in the Bay, along with my wife. She's a lender. So give you a little bit of backstory. We have helped over 200 people with their moves in the Bay Area in the last five years alone, which leads us to being the top 1% in the country. Some of you guys may be watching this from my YouTube channel. So feel free to subscribe on that channel, youtube.com slash my name, Spencer Sue. We go through lots of this great content of uh, educational pieces, market updates, lifestyle in the Bay Area. So be sure to tune in there. And so a little bit about us, we personally have different exposures and some of them we like, some of them we don't like. And I wanted to share like our personal strategies, but also our personal beliefs. And because I've, I have invested in almost all of these different types of asset classes, I can give you a little bit of the behind the scenes to understand what the good and the bad is about all of these approaches. So a little bit about us. So we also own a few rentals here in the Bay Area. We own a few homes in the Bay. Uh, prior to us, uh, prior to me actually being in real estate, I actually got into the business first by doing a few house flips. I went to a lot of great real estate networking events, and that's what actually got me into the business to begin with. And so I got to do flips myself. I've also got to lend money to flippers. So I understand how their business model works. And we'll talk about that. Eventually, I started later on, I started just investing in things that are less, uh, that there are more quote unquote passive, right? So you can be passive if you're investing money into syndications. We'll talk about the whole concept of that and how that's structured. And the last but not least, I'm not happy with that. I'm going to go ahead and mute you. So uh, other than that, I'm also going to bring up the aspect of just if you wanted to be really active in some of these things, what can you do? Um, and there's no longer passive investing, but these are more of active real estate uh, things and projects that you guys could end up learning and doing. It's not easy, but depending on your own goals and initiatives, that that could be a solution for you. Because at the end of the day, think about it. We're going to talk about multifamily. We're going to talk about these large projects. Well, there's many key components to it. The most important two 
is going to be one finding these projects. So there's lots of money that can be there if you can find projects that make sense. And the other is capital raising for these projects. But at the end of the day, we'll talk about like the, the mesh of them. Uh, depending on where they are at with individual partners, they may be asking for a lot or a little. And we'll, we'll, we'll definitely go over the reasons why and why it's, it's so important to be always actively networking, always actively being engaged, depending on the specific that you want to do. So the question to yourself is, what investment option is right for you as an individual? So at the end of the day, here are the things to consider. Number one, how much money are you willing to invest will ultimately dictate your options. Just like if you were to buy a home here in the Bay Area, right? If you have a million dollars, you have different options. You don't have every option, but you have a lot of options. If it's 2 million, same idea. But let's say it's 500,000 or less, 50,000, whatever it may be, you'll be dictated by where you can consider and what kind of investment vehicles there are. So keep that in mind. Number two, how much control do you want to have over your investments? So some of them are... Some of them are, um, you are buying your own place. So you make all the decisions, right? You're the only person that's on, on, on title. You're the only person on the project. So then it's on you to make that, that call. On the other, you're basically lending people money. So you're trusting the people that are operating that deal. So that's a very, very different mental hat that you need to have. That's what's passive, which is good and bad. We'll talk about that momentarily. How much do you want in that asset class? So some people say, look, uh, I'm going to buy my Bay Area as a primary, but I have extra money. I want to keep buying more investments. Maybe I buy another in the Bay Area or I buy out of state, right? That's your own personal decision. There's no right or wrong about that. There's always pros and cons with everything, but just be mindful of that's your own decision to make. Next, because of the money and because of uh, your own thesis, you may work in the Bay, which a majority of people here work in the Bay. But you, so what that means is you typically make a lot more money here relative to the rest of the country. And so some people say, look, because of that, I buy multiple in the Bay. I have some clients here on, on this call as we speak, they buy multifamily in the Bay. Others say, look, I have other clients that say, I'm going to buy single family in Texas, Florida, wherever it may be. And over time, time will tell who's who's performing better than others. And to be fair, the journey about going through that is a different story altogether. So these are all the things that you want to think about first, because understanding this, I'm going to give you about like seven, eight different options when it comes to exposure to real estate as an asset class. But then it's on you to decide which one is best for you. And then to go deeper into that, right? You don't need to do all of them, but this is a, that's why I mentioned this course is like a high level one. Just to understand, like, there are a lot of options. There's good and bad in all of them, but it's your personal decision what you do want to do. So number one, let's talk about primary homes first. So for the most part, most people, wherever they live, if they plan to be in an area, they likely should be buying a place. And the reason for that is this. You're not living in a place rent-free. You are paying rent or you're paying some level of expense while being there anyways. So a lot of people should be, if they're planning to be in an area for at least a couple of years, be buying their own primary. And so what are ways to use this as more of an investment vehicle than just for yourself? Uh, some of the options you can see, a lot of people that I know, especially when they're younger in their careers or they're, they have this mentality of generating income, they rent out a portion of their place. 
right? Because that's a way for others to subsidize the expenses that you have as a mortgage, yet you have the benefits of appreciation, but you also have the benefits of being a homeowner on the tax side of things. So that's a very, very beneficial and powerful thing is just having others subsidize your costs. Some people are even more creative, right? Some are actually converting some of it into short-term rentals or what they also call midterm rentals. So what's a midterm rental? Midterm rental is like, uh, there's a lot of traveling nurses, right? Traveling, uh, just people here temporarily for their own reasons. Maybe it's even people for doing a level of school. So like those are opportunities where it's not as much work of like Airbnb every, every few days, you gotta rotate somebody in and out, but it's a little bit better revenue wise too than somebody that's staying for a whole year lease because they're paying for the convenience and the flexibility to only have to be here for a few months of the year. That has, in, that has increased significantly. Now, different markets are stronger than others for that, but that's, these are all like tools of even leveraging the house that you're living in, right? And then the last thing, which is a very powerful thing, which is the aspect of generally, especially in the Bay Area, home prices do rise over an extended period of time. So over time, you're going to have typically more equity, especially as you pay down your own loan. So what that means is that you have the option to open up a line of credit. And when you open up a line of credit, you are not getting taxed on this. And so why that's so powerful is that people can roll that into some other investments if they choose to use so, to do so, right? So these are all like the benefits of just having a primary, but figuring out ways to lower your holding costs, yet have that appreciation over time. So very, very powerful tool. This is generally the, the first thing that people should be doing. Uh, especially if they are renting, because your, your your goal is to try to get out of that rental uh, space, right? So that's that's why that's important. Now, the other powerful thing, especially if you buy your own place, is imagine if you bought a place like a single family. Now, this has gotten extremely popular over the years and will continue to be that way. But a lot of people don't really understand how much these typically cost. So I want to go over that. Now, what is an in-law unit? In-law units can mean a variety of things, but high level, think about it as a separate living unit. Now, the separate living unit could be a garage conversion. So we see people converting a garage because it already has a shell in place to just add a kitchen and bathroom into it. And it's you don't actually need that overall outside structure. Some have additional pieces of land on their lot itself. So they build a separate in-law unit structure there, right? So these are all potentially, especially in good areas, very, very valuable. Because think about this. In a lot of the good areas, let's say in the peninsula or in a lot of places in the South Bay, the price per square foot of home is very high. The building cost, whether you're building pretty much in the East Bay or you're building in the peninsula, is virtually similar, right? Because the labor pool is virtually the same. And so while maybe a little bit incrementally there, the magnitude is completely different from the value of a home in the peninsula for a price per square foot versus the East Bay. And so why is that? The, the reason for that is combination. It's the location, but also then the value of the land is important. So if the overall cost is four, 500 per square foot, you can do the math. Some of these areas where they may have a small home or they may have uh, a decent sized lot, it may make sense to do this kind of project and either have it for, your, for yourself or to have it as, a, as something of value down the road when you want to resell it, or now you have a separate living quarters to then rent it out. And I see a lot of people going 
go through this project right now as we speak. Now, what's the con about this approach? The con about this approach is it's a lot more expensive than people think. I give you a thoughts of like general prices, four to 500 per square feet. If it's a 700 square foot in-law unit, that's going to be like over $300,000. The downside of this, this model is that there's not many financing tools available at all. Most people are using their own cash or they're using what you just saw earlier, the benefit of a HELOC, they're using a product like that. So keep that in mind. Like this is not, even though the, the, the goal is correct of building more units, generating income, the amount of money it takes for this is not uh, inexpensive. So that's been a, a hurdle actually for a lot is even, even though people have the ability to do it and want to do it, the, the cost of just having that kind of capital, 300,000 basically in cash is not uh, available for a lot of people. But we will continue to see these projects unfold. And this is a very, very beneficial way, right? At the end of the day, like, like all assets and good assets, they keep going up and the value is in the land. Now, next, some people want to get into something that has more cash flow from the beginning. So answer this, why is the cash flow for multifamilies so much lower in the Bay Area than it is in other places? All right, like think about it. Feel free to type it in to the comments below with your thoughts. Like why is it much lower? And the reason is several. Number one, at the end of the day, people in the Bay Area as homeowners, they may elect and choose to buy their own place themselves as a multifamily. So they live in one of the units and then they rent out the other units. Now it doesn't subsidize them completely. And that's not the mindset to have, but it is better cash flow wise than buying like a single family yourself or a condo and townhome on its own. So that is why generally the cap rates or the, the cash flows for these in the Bay Area is not that high. It's because as an individual to me, but like, look, let me just buy it for myself. I'm going to live in one of the units. They will be able to subsidize my expenses. That's number one. Number two, the lending guidelines are also different. So when you are house hacking, back to my first example of the, of the single family home or a condo townhome that you're renting out rooms, the lender doesn't count that as a way to subsidize you. But when it comes to income of multifamily, it does. So you would actually be able to qualify for more because you're actually able to count that now. That's a big difference. Now, they don't count the full amount, but they count some of it. So that is a, 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 a great benefit. So I'll give you some examples. I have some clients that use an FHA loan, which is just 3.5% down for multifamily in the Bay Area. Like you don't need that much money to be able to buy a, a, a unit like this, right? Which is very, very powerful for them. They're able, to, they're able to continue to add to the portfolio without having to put that much capital down. I mean, think about it. Even a, a 1.2 million duplex in Redwood City, that's if it's 3.5% down, that's uh, like $40,000 to be able to own a $1.2 million place. It's pretty good. So like th those are the ways that people are doing it. So that's some of the, the ideas of why some people are buying that kind of structure. They're either living themselves and renting out other units or we also have investors that just buy this kind of property anyways. Multifamily in the same area of anywhere in the country is going to have a higher cash flow than like a single family condo or townhome alternative. So depending on your own goals, you may buy a multifamily in the Bay. You may buy a multifamily in Texas. You may buy a multifamily in the Midwest. You have, you have options there. 
the key and the thing to be mindful of though is most of these multifamilies are older. Like they don't build this product of like duplex, triplex, quaplexes very much anymore. So don't be surprised that you're not going to have a lot to choose from. And don't be surprised that the really the ones that go and sell are the ones that another investor are, is selling or a case of an, an owner, they lived in it, they want to sell it, move on to the next place. So don't be surprised that a lot of the products of this is going to be older in general, right? They don't build any of these smaller ones and they, they won't ever do that ever again. They do have some of these large developments, large scale. We'll talk about how you invest in those. But most of these are, are much smaller and they there is not many new ones. Okay, let's talk about next one. Art of flipping, flipping homes. So here is how the game works of flipping homes. High level, a investor sees an opportunity and the opportunity can be in different ways. It could be an opportunity because they feel like the home is undervalued. If they renovate it, they can get it. They can make some money in between. There are some people that say, look, I'm going to tear this whole thing down. The value is not renovating it. The value is tearing it down and building a large home. So there's a lot of developers that do that. Take a look. Look at West Menlo Park. Look at Menlo Park. Tons of new teardowns. And there's a lots of $4 million plus homes. So the game is clearly that game there. Why? Because there is a plenty of buyers that continue to want to move there and they want a newer product. Now, to be fair, you don't see a whole lot of these in places like Fremont or places like Hayward. Why? goes back to what I mentioned before, the cost of construction. At the end of the day, the value is in the land and the price per square foot. It doesn't make usually much sense to do that in those markets, but you'll see a lot of it in very good areas. So the peninsula has a lot of them. A lot of places in Santa Clara County has a lot of them. So the, the idea is the developer or the investor or the flipper has an eye of like, all right, what is the opportunity to do to do that? And can I buy it at that price? Now, at the end of the day, though, to be fair, a lot of these flippers, they get access to this in different ways. And that's the hardest part about this. The numbers itself is important. The, the, how you get the capital is important. But the, the finding of these are, is incredibly difficult. There are many flippers in the Bay Area that spend ten dollars to $20,000 a month doing direct mailers to those shabby homes that you think are good opportunities. And they do that for years. So unless you're willing to do that, you're not going to be able to compete with that. That consistency, that amount of burn of cash over and over and over again with just the opportunity to be able to get a deal. Right. So keep that in mind. You have to be understanding of the game. Now, there are others that other agents may potentially bring these opportunities. Super rare, too, to be fair, but you never know. So if you're able to constantly network and constantly be top of mind for a group of agents, then that may be also a strategy. So that's why I personally get tons of spam texts. That's why lots of people get tons of spam texts. Do you have anything that's off market? Do you have anything that I can flip? Like all this kind of stuff. So that's the game of flipping. Now, the reason I bring up this aspect is you may know a flipper. Now, how do you think a flipper usually finances these deals, right? And that's where you as an investor comes into play. So there are, like, at the end of the day, if you think about it, how, do they, how are these flippers buying in all cash? They usually do it in two ways. A majority of the loan is going to be used from a company like a hard money lender. And a hard money lender is actually a much bigger lending arm that is only doing this for short-term activity, but their cost of capital is very low. Think about hedge funds, think about pension funds, think about 
just lots of other things that their 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 cost of capital is very low. So they have these margins like any bank would, right? So they will be able to front majority of the project, let's say 80% of the project or even 90% of the project and maybe 80, 90% of the whole renovation fund. But you can still see there's a there's still a delta, 10, 10%, 20% on the cost or and or the renovation amount. In the Bay Area, that can still equate to hundreds of thousands of dollars. Now, there are some flippers that have that capital that they're just putting in themselves, but they do most of the time, they're really gonna be locked in. They can kind of only do maybe one project at a time. Others then farm that out and that's where investors get involved. So you as an investor can say, look, I'm willing to give you a piece of the amount that you need. Let's say $25,000 increment, $50,000 increment, maybe the whole thing. And in, in exchange, I want some money. Now, what is the usual amount for that kind of, what, what is the usual amount for these kind of deals? Right now, the hard money lending side, it's around um, nine to 10%. Actually, I would say nine to 11%. On the hard money side, lending side, they're the ones giving the 80%. On this end, I would not be surprised that right now is between 10 to 12% of what you can return annually, right? So some people like that. Some people, it's generally a quick turnaround and it's up to you to negotiate the deal. But the way that these work is generally the more experienced the flipper is, the more investors have already are already working with them. So they're more of a sure bet. So their risk is lower. And so when the risk is lower, they're able to ask for less, right? You have a higher chance of getting your money back and, they're, and you're going to have less stress about it. They're also, to be fair, their cost of capital is typically less because they also have other investors willing to do it. Now, if you're a new flipper and you're trying to ask for money, you can go with these standard amounts or you may have to ask and figure out a better deal structure for them to for them to give you money but the downside of you as an investor is you have more risk like what how do you know they're going to perform well how do you know they're going to make the right choices how do you know they're going to do things on time like these are all risks you can't lose all of your money this is not like this is not all rosy right you can lose everything you can lose all of your your money right at the end of the day the winner would be like the hard money lender that may have gotten a home at a discount if you're not able to do the project properly. So understand there's always risk in all of these. And that's something very, very important to understand. Like vet the flipper. Like what is your experience? Maybe for you as an investor, like especially if you haven't invested in this, don't be too greedy. Like get get kind of that behind the scene access and see what's going on about it. And then you can decide do you still want to keep doing that or not. So some have found this very lucrative. Like for example, I've seen, I've seen some deal structure where uh, some of the investors, they ask for points up front. What is a point? Like a point is like, as soon as you do the loan, I get a per, like a percent, let's say 1% or whatever it may be. And the benefit of that is, let's say they do two projects a year. That could be two points. That could be 2%. So if they do two projects using this amount, your returns get better, right? Because the alternative of the 10 to 12% is, that's 12, 10 to 12% is not for the term of the project. It's 10 to 12% a year. So you can see like there's different ways of how this is structured and, and this is... um. This is a this is a common place now. Uh, flippers like there's many ways for you to find flippers. Um, there's lots of networking groups. There's lots of in-person networking groups. So lots of options there to to understand that. Next, let's talk about something that's very passive but also very liquid. Now I'm not gonna um, recommend like real like 
players to do it, but you can easily see for yourself. But the idea is that there are publicly traded companies that are doing these things at a very, very big scale, right? Which is ultimately Wall Street. I mean, think about this. Like, think about all this industrial space. Raise your hand if you knew what a prologist was five years ago. Have you even heard of a prologist? Like, just five years ago. Like, now you see it a lot, like, as a hypo, just as an example, right? Like, you see a lot of prologists. Like, who, who the heck is prologists? And then you take a look at them. They're like a huge company and they're a publicly traded company. And so how does that game work, right? So REITs are these, these vehicles that are basically publicly traded stocks. So you can be like, look, I really like data centers. So what are the companies or what are the REITs that are exposed to that? Or I can say, well, you know what? The, the, the idea of the death of the malls is overblown. I actually think that's going to go on a rebound. So you may make a bet on that. That's your own personal choice. And so you can kind of see where are these uh, trusts and these investment vehicles that may be focusing on any of these. And you'll see it from everything, medical buildings, uh, office space, um, just general all real estate assets. Like Blackstone is the biggest owner of assets, like real estate assets. So you can see like there's lots of options for you to get exposure to it from your overall, just no different than stocks, just like how you can get exposure to U.S. companies, global companies, tech, industrial, whatever it may be, right? Like this is a way to play that. And the benefit of this is that it's very liquid. So you can you can drop a million dollars today and you'd be like, ah, I got second thoughts, take my million dollars, trade it out, right? As you can, it's, li it's that liquid for that because it's just like any stock. And so this is a, an, an interesting vehicle for many. There's not any control you're doing for this, right? Yeah, you have literally no say about any of this, but it's uh, if you want an exposure, if you want to make your own personal bets, then you're welcome to do so. That's like picking any stocks. There are certainly lots of risk of assessments and things like that when it comes to this one. Now, that is on a very large scale. And we're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars of those firms, right? Now, there is things at a much smaller scale, which are these limited partner opportunities. So think about this. If um, and the Bay Area is not as much, but let's say you ever been to Texas and you've ever been to Florida and you're like, wow, there's a 200 unit building there, like a 200 unit multifamily building. And you're, you'll be like, all right, cool. There's a 200 unit building. Must be some big company owns that. The answer is no. The answer is you and I can actually own that ourselves. Now, I may not have that capital, neither do you on your own, but what they do is there are group, what they call as general partners, managing partners, that would be leaders of something like this. And so what are the key three people involved in these kind of projects? And I brought up some of them in the beginning. Number one, you have someone that found the deal, as in someone that found this as an opportunity. This is not like Redfin or Zillow, where it just comes up on the MLS. These are, there's only so many of these. And so generally in this case, only brokers are aware of these opportunities. So that's number one. Uh, number two, you need somebody that is raising capital, right? Like if something is a 200 units in Texas, let's say it costs 10 million bucks. Well, they're going to get a regular big commercial loan that'll cover, let's say 50, 60% of it. And the remaining amount needs to be raised. And so somebody needs to figure it out. Where are we going to get the money? The project makes sense financially, but how are we going to get the money for that? So that's like the second one, which is uh, someone that's raising capital. And there's a third one, which is 
the operating person, the operator. Now, the way that most of these are done is either they're going to develop something, like they're going to build some things, which is a different risk profile, or they're going to be doing value add. So they say, look, the rents right now are 800 bucks. If I did a renovation, I spent 10 grand each, it will increase to a thousand bucks per door, per unit. And, but because you're doing all those increments and you got 200 units at it, that can scale and be a very big number. Because the way that these are valued is typically by cap rates. And what is a cap rate? It's a combination of operating income, which is profit divided by the purchase price. So if you're able to increase the income, then you can increase significantly of the value of the place. That's the whole game. That's the whole game in high-level theory, right? But obviously, it takes all those components and those team leaders to be able to operate that and to be able to deliver the returns for it. So how do you potentially participate as an investor? Number one, a lot of these projects, you do need to be an accredited investor because like many things, you can lose all of your money. So they want to make sure, oh, do you understand this? Like this better not be your entire net worth in this project. So that's that's a majority of these projects, right? So you have to be an accredited investor. You can look that up. There's guidelines of either how much net worth you have or how much income you make a year. So that's like one component. The other component is there are some that are open to everybody. And if you're not an accredited investor, then that's something you may want to look into and see what opportunities are there. Now, how do the returns work then, right? So the idea is you're going to be investing some increment, just like how a flipper would have asked for money. Generally, the minimum is 50,000. Many times it could go a minimum 100,000, depending on the size of it. So you do have to make some increment of investments. Now, what do you get usually in return of it? It all depends on the project and you will know all of this in advance. But every year, there may be some cash flow component to it, as in there, there's, there's actually net positive cash flow of these, and they pay out investors a percent, right? Every quarter, every month, depending on how that's structured. That's like one component of it. And then the other component is down the road, as I mentioned, when they do all these improvements and they stabilize the rents, then they will try to sell it. And when they sell it, they're selling the whole thing. And it, because you are a minority shareholder of it, depending on how much you put in, you may be able to, you will get some money back from the amount of capital you have. So that's how the game works in this vehicle. Now, what's the con of this vehicle? As I mentioned, that it takes time to renovate it. It takes time to stabilize it. It takes time to find a buyer. So at the end of the day, the holding period for this is usually five to seven years plus. Now, in the last few years, things were crazy, was super attractive for this. And so things got compressed in terms of the exits. A lot of exits were done within three years, three to five years. But that time has, has passed. It's not that kind of frothy market anymore. Um, so generally, if you're going to invest in this kind of vehicle, it's going to take five to seven years at least. And you cannot pull it out. So if you, if you have some medical emergency, don't even think about pulling this out. Think about it like as if it was locked. And, and because that's, that's this kind of investment vehicle, right? So I went over a lot of information and I went over a lot of different things to consider, right? And leave in the comments and feel free to ask any questions. I'm about to uh, go into the Q&A. But at the end of the day, here are the things to consider. I give you virtually every investment vehicle option you can have in real estate. And of course, you can go as deep as you want. You can be an, uh, an expert. 
Every, every area has its own pros and cons, but at least you're now exposed to the different types. So what are the things to consider at the end of the day? Like they all sound interesting. They all sound good. But at the end of the day, like I said, with many things, the way that you really will learn is when you actually get your money involved with it, because now you actually have some skin in the game. Having skin in the game basically forces you to really understand it more, learn more about it, care more about it. And so that's my suggestion for any of those choices. Like you're like, Spencer, this is cool. I like X. Well, figure out the partner, figure out how that works and get involved. And then you can decide, do you want to keep doing that down the road or glad that you did because this will help you learn a lot faster. Next, all of these returns are very different. Like I gave you some general ranges of what you can expect about some of these vehicles. But typically how it works is you should be getting higher returns if it's a riskier project. But you also want to be careful. Does it sound too good to be true? Right? Like if someone was offering you 20% with 20% uh, annual returns, that is crazy good. So you should have immediately alarms that went off. Like, how is this that high? What's the catch or what's the risk, right? Like no different than when people were trading crypto over the last few years. They were making 100% a year. You should be asking yourself, how was that the case? Like, is that sustainable? Can it go? Can it implode? And it could be, right? So those are the things just to be mindful of. And at the end of the day, it's your decision. Like I said, I'm not a financial advisor but I did give you all these different things to consider. And the last but not least, if you're going to be dealing with things that are not in your direct ownership, right? If you're doing things that are not in your direct ownership, do you believe that, do you believe and trust that uh, the team will do a good job? Like, like if you're going to invest in, in a, as an LP five to seven years, I mean, you better do your due diligence on one end, like ask all the questions you need to ask. They should have a good defense they don't need to know, like nobody's going to protect the future. That's not what you should be asking or considering. But are they reasonable of their assumptions? Are they people that are problem solvers? I mean, think about what happened in the last year. Like there is no, uh, there is no forecast at all that race would be at today's number if you asked a year ago. There is zero. So some people are caught with their pants down and they're underwater while others are like, yeah, this is not good, of course, but they're able to write things out. Maybe they were very conservative underwriting. Maybe they're not even paying themselves. Maybe they were uh, doing some other things to like prolong it. Like right now it's just surviving for a lot of these, these projects. Right. And so nobody's going to, it's never always all, all positive, but the key is, do they have the right disciplines and do they have the right structure in place to be able to ride these things out when things are not good? Things are not good right now in a lot of commercial space. doesn't mean it's not investable. It just means it's just tighter. Like they have to be more conservative. They have to, they have to like change some of their strategies and those that are experienced or those that think that way can do a better job than others. Right. All right. So let's uh, open it up. If you anyone have any questions, obviously, Leave in the comments below or send me a text. Give me a call. Send me an email. Happy to go over a game plan with you directly. Whether you're doing something in the Bay or you want to invest somewhere else, I have great partners all across the board that can help you with whatever goals that you like. Um, so thanks for the question. Thanks, Spencer. What is a good cap rate? And can you give it an example? There is no quote unquote good cap rate per se, 
right? At the end of the day, every area will have its own cap rates. So for example, Bay Area, which is some of the lowest cap rates in the country. Why is that? As I mentioned, our incomes here are extremely high. Individual buyers could be buying houses or they just buy a multifamily and that's still better than buying an individual house from a cash flow perspective. You also have people all over the world that buy properties here because of its class A nature of it, right? You have high incomes, you have low supply, you have no new homes being built. And so people have that thesis. So to give you an idea, like the Bay Area, four to 5% is not unrealistic, right? So that's the Bay Area. Now, the further out you go can increase slightly um, versus places like, uh, I don't know, Texas or something. There is, I don't know, five or 6% these days. It's not like drastically better. So every, and, and that's, and I'm just talking about Texas as a macro. I mean, Texas is huge too, right? So it goes by like specific cities. San Antonio will be X, Houston will be Y, Dallas is something else. And so the key is, all right, number one, what's your thesis of that area? Like, are you bullish of it because of company, all these companies are leaving there and, and population growth, et cetera, et cetera. That's number one. Number two, do you think that will continue to increase? Like as in rent will continue to increase, right? Because remember, cap rate is just a measure of the numbers today. But if things are going to increase over time and grow, you have to factor that in. So factor that in. What is it likely to be a few years down the road? Is it the same rents? Is it 10% more or whatever it may be? So it's your own personal decision of what's the right number. And then what does that look like from a finance perspective? Like in the Bay Area, unless you're putting a lot of money down, you're going to be cash flow negative. But that's a measurement of your expenses versus what the total returns may be. The total returns may be higher, right? So that's the way that things are structured. And so it's just on, on you of what is your goal? Do you want exposure in XYZ area? And then you make a move and decision from there. And the cap rates also differ are different from like, uh, like, a multi, like a residential multifamily, which is up to four units, or you also have the, the ones in between, like a five to almost like a 50 unit. And then you have for those, like the syndicates that I talked about, those will be, depending on the area, 100 plus units. So there will be a little bit of a difference there because like the financial instruments are different from one another. Okay, any other questions or thoughts? You are welcome. Thanks for tuning in. Of course, if anyone found this value, please be sure to watch it on the YouTube channel. Hit the like button, subscribe, share with another of friends. And of course, you can reach me directly, as you can see here. And I would love to go over a game plan with you and just give you the best ideas and tips when you're underway on your investment journey. Enjoy the rest of the week. I'll see you in the next one. Bye now.